Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. While the Western Roman Empire fell in the 5th century, the traditions of Rome carried on for another millennium in the East centered on Constantinople. The taking of Constantinople by the Ottoman Turks and true end of the traditions of Rome had a global impact that held far-reaching consequences. Today, we'll talk about the final few years of the Byzantine Empire and the conquest of the bridge between Europe and Asia. Let's begin. All right, welcome to HI 101. I'm here with my brother, Ethan Blesky. Hi. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on the show. It should be pretty good. I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited too. And we decided to talk about the fall of Constantinople today. Now, there's been a couple of falls of Constantinople. Specifically, we're talking (laughs) about the fall of Constantinople in 1453, when the Byzantine Empire was defeated by the Ottoman Turks. Okay. So, that's just the broadest of context for what we're going (laughs) to talk about. And the reason we picked this one is because, well, to be honest, I kind of picked this one because we were we were throwing around a lot of topics. Yeah. Um, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we kind of picked this one because it's just one city, it's just one siege, and yet sort of the broader ramifications... It's got a lot of ripples. There's a lot of ripples coming up. So... We we kind of decided to do this. This is our butterfly effect show. We're going to talk about the how the fall of one city can really change the course to, uh, of of entire civilizations. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited to get into that. So let's talk about Constantinople a little bit. Mm-hmm. The city of Constantinople was founded in 330 by Constantine the Great, the yeah. Roman Emperor. There had been the city of Byzantium there before, but it was basically gone by the time Constantinople was founded. Okay, so it was like ruins more or or less there were kind of the wreckage of walls and there were some people living there but it wasn't a a city proper okay it it was still a city the thing geographically about constantinople is that it is probably the most fortuitously placed settlement in human history there are there are several contenders for that yeah for that title i mean in iraq where mesopotamia formed yeah between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, that's a pretty good one. Cradle too. of civilization. Yeah, exactly. That's a pretty good one as well. Yeah. The thing about Constantinople, though, is that it is right on what's known as the Bosphorus Strait, which is basically a, a channel that runs from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. Okay. Okay. So anything north of, of the, the Mediterranean, it kind of controls trade going north south yeah. along that waterway. Yeah. It's also 
the dividing line between the, the traditionally held dividing line between Europe and Asia. Yeah. So in terms of placement for military purposes, for trade, trade. it's pretty well placed. Yeah. For knowledge even. Absolutely. The trade of knowledge between Asia and Europe. That too, absolutely. The other thing that's that's really fortuitous about the way Constantinople is placed is there's something known as the Golden Horn, which is the way that the Bosphorus is shaped coming out of the Mediterranean into the Black Sea, right beside Constantinople. It's shaped like a cow horn. Okay. It makes a naturally very calm, very accessible port yeah a port a port so it's really easy to get ships to just kind of sail into there and park and offload goods (laughs) and it's it's just which makes it also ideal for trading with uh egypt exactly anything in the mediterranean which is a lot of places Mm -hmm. spain any of that yeah yeah it's amazing and then on top of that the way that constantinople is situated just locally Basically, it's this big triangle sticking out into the Mediterranean slash the Bosphorus, where really three three sides of it is surrounded by ocean, huh? Which is great. And then the fourth side, it's fairly easy to defend. Like it's go, you, you have to go uphill into Constantinople. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so you've got this place that is ideally situated on a macro geographic scale for trade. Yeah. On a micro geographic scale for defense. Yeah. I mean, it, it's perfect. People yeah. people came along long, long ago, thousands of years ago, and went, that is a great place for a city. And they have been right ever since. <laughs> Specifically, Constantinople is on the west side of the Bosphorus. Okay. So it's technically in the Europe side. Today, when you look at Istanbul... It's, it's expanded onto both sides of the yeah, Bosphorus? Yeah, it, it spans both sides. But traditional Constantinople is on the west side. Okay. So that's that's the one that we're going to be talking about today. That's where it was in the 15th century okay. when this when this conquest happened. So it's a pretty great place for a city. And when Constantine came along in 330, I, I mean, he thought what everyone else had thought. This is a great place for a city. Yeah. The other thing is that at that point in the Roman Empire, the empire had expanded so much that Constantinople was a lot more central to its holdings than than Rome could ever possibly hope to be. Okay, yeah. In fact, at that point, Rome wasn't even really used as an administrative capital. They had moved it slightly north. Rome was mostly ceremonial at that point. Okay. Yeah. So he saw this as an opportunity to relieve some of the administrative burden that was on Italy at that point, because to... He was outsourcing. Yeah, well, I mean, to to some extent. To, To rule that far away takes a long time. Yeah. When you're sending horse messengers and things like that. <laughs> so it was easier to have two administrative capitals yeah. than to try and, and, and rule from Italy when they're expanding so far east. Yeah. So when the Western Roman Empire fell, Constantinople was the Roman Empire. We talk about the Roman Empire falling in the 5th century. Yeah. It didn't really. Yeah. Because there was still the Roman Empire. I mean, I've heard this before, but it's always been a concept that I've had a, a little trouble grasping, I guess. Because when you think Rome, you think you think Italy, you think the togas, you think all of that. But really, after a certain point, it was Constantinople. Yeah, and, and what happened there was a, a massive uh, cultural shift as well as a uh, political one. Yeah. Because 
the eastern half of the Roman Empire was much more influenced by Greek culture than it was Latin culture. Oh, okay. So when you're when we're talking about Constantinople as an administrative capital, we're switching away from Latin as the language used for law, for uh, trade, for everyday things, yeah. to the Greek language. Oh, okay. Because, I didn't know that. Yeah, and th- and that's a very important part. And what we start talking about is uh, what's known as the Byzantine Empire. Now, that's a neologism that's useful for historians to distinguish between when Rome spanned all of Europe and a bunch of Asia, yeah. and after the fall when it was ruled exclusively from Constantinople. During the, the Byzantine period, they would never have called themselves the Byzantines because yeah. Byzantium was just the city that had come before, happened to occupy the same space, and declined massively until Constantinople was refounded on its own. It's like roots. us calling ourselves the Algonquins. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense, but it might be useful in terms of geography if someone was looking at us a thousand years from now. Yeah. So, because, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't Byzantine in language. It wasn't Byzantine in culture. Not even in the name of the city. Yeah. But I, I don't know what else you would really call them. The Constantinopolans or whatever. It doesn't work <laughs> all that well. It's pretty terrible. Yeah. So... The distinction there mainly comes from the cultural differences, where we're looking at a very Greek culture in a lot of ways, not just language, but also societal values. So things like really valuing philosophy and rhetoric rather than Rome was always very militaristic and very legalistic. Yeah. Whereas there was still this love of art and love of education that really shone through in the Byzantine Empire. Okay. When we're looking at the Byzantine Empire, I I mean... it's kind of weird to think about Greece after after Greece got steamrolled by Rome because you yeah. kind of feel like, well, where did they all go? They were always a part of society, and when the Western Roman Empire fell, that underground society really bloomed within the Byzantine Empire to the point where Latin was almost never used anymore. Hmm. It was understood by scholars and by the elites and things like that because they still needed to communicate with with the West, who was using almost exclusively Latin, but it really showed a divide between the two cultures. Okay. Okay? This kind of all led to, and and this is all still background to where we're we're going with 1453, but it's important to understand what's going on here exactly. Yeah. We get to the Crusades, and the Crusades were all about, ostensibly, all about going and taking the, the Holy Land back from people who are not christian yeah right that was that was the main goal during the fourth crusade in 1205 a bunch of crusaders decided to take a hard left and headed over to constantinople and actually managed to take the city away from the byzantines oh what we have here is you know europeans so we're talking french german french german mostly actually attacking the still European, but Eastern European Byzantine Empire and taking the city from them. Okay. Now, they did manage to retake the city in 1261. The period between 1205 and 1261, something called the Latin Empire was founded. Uh, (laughs) The names get real confusing here. Okay. And the Latin Empire kind of kicked around for a little while, even after Constantinople was taken back by the Byzantines. But... Byzantium never really bounced back after that. All of a sudden, they started really... Like, after they lost their administrative capital, even after they got it back, 
there was a pretty hard decline. They were basically at war constantly over the next couple hundred years. Was there like a like a sack? Did they lose a bunch of information? Uh, there was a sack. There wasn't a terrible <clears throat> problem with losing. It was. It wasn't like Rome. Like they didn't lose all of their cultural heritage because of the. Yeah, the it event. didn't get destroyed. No, because. What what we have to look at here, and we're going to jump back a little bit more, is something... We're back and forth, back and forth. We're going to go, to go back to 1054, and there was something called the Great Schism. Mm-hmm. And the Great Schism was a schism within the Catholic Church. The two popes, right? Uh, something like that. I mean, the two popes can refer to a number of things, including when there was an anti-pope, but that's a story for another episode, <laughs> which is a great name. That was just when there that were was two. French. Yes, he was in. Uh, that, that was when there was a pope in Rome and a pope in Avignon. Yeah, but that's that's a completely different story. What happened was there was a patriarch in Constantinople. Patriarchs were sort of like cardinals or like like okay. top tier yep. kind of church officials, and the Eastern Church and the Western Church disagreed on a couple of very fundamental theological issues which seem really silly now is this the orthodox versus yes catholic this is okay this is where eastern orthodoxy comes from in 1054 based on first of all whether or not it's okay to have icons like drawings of religious figures okay and second of all what the relationship between the holy spirit and uh, god the father and jesus was Okay. They disagreed on those two points and a couple other really minor things, but those aren't, they don't feel like big things now. Yeah. But they were everything to these people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The two leaders excommunicated each other. Yes. And after that, the divide between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy has been very pronounced. Yeah. So when these crusaders were going to take Constantinople, they were thinking of that as being just as holy a cause as going to Jerusalem and taking it from the Muslims because they're looking at taking a holy city of Constantinople back from these people who had lost their way, even though they still called themselves Christians. Okay. So that's kind of the mindset that's going on there. It seems very odd for crusaders to go after other Christians, but that's what they were thinking. Yeah. So we were talking about how the Byzantines got Constantinople back in 1261 Mm -hmm. and how there's sort of a decline after that they were beset on a few sides by uh, warring parties the Latins never really let up their pressure on Constantinople yeah which takes a big toll I mean if you're if you're at war constantly your military your economy all of that stuff really really hard to keep up morale in the city absolutely and by the time we get to the 1450s Constantinople had actually shrunk quite a bit in population to the point where there were only about 50,000 people living within the walls. And this used to be like the largest city in in Europe. Yeah. It was massive. The mm-hmm. uh, it, it had shrunk so much that essentially what you had were were the historical walls of Constantinople and then behind those you had like little villages with green space between them oh, within okay. the walls of Constantinople. Okay. Obviously the uh, the emperor of the byzantine empire still had his seat there so there was a lot of high-end administrative stuff going on there were a lot of high-end religious things going on but it wasn't the city that it had been yeah and because they had lost so much land in in all this warfare because i mean they they hadn't managed to keep their borders the same you can't yeah over 200 years of warfare right (laughs) essentially 
1450, what the Byzantine, like the, the Byzantine Empire consisted of essentially Constantinople itself and a small area around it. The Peloponnese, which is a, a an island just off the coast of Greece. Yep. So that's where Sparta would be. Yep. A few small islands in the Aegean Sea and some very closely allied states uh, along the Black Sea. Okay. Not exactly the Eastern Roman Empire that it used to be. Yeah. Because it was getting pressure from the West, from Roman Catholic states. And it was getting pressure from the East because due to several hundred years of the Mongols pushing against them, the Turkish people had moved south from the plains of Russia down into Asia Minor, which is like the the big chunk of Turkey that is yeah. like the Asian part of Turkey. Okay. So, I mean, the, the Turks were all over the place in there. They were a migratory people for a long time. But so they're, they're getting they're getting pressure on each side and they lost a lot of territory in the process. Okay. The main Turkish state at this point in time were the Ottomans. Yeah. And you would know this name. They're very popular or they're very famous. They've been around for a long time or had been around for a long time, I should say. Yeah. And are, are quite well known. In 1451 the sultan of the ottoman empire died and his son took the throne at only 19 the new sultan okay. was named uh mehmed the second and i've heard that name interesting I, I i wasn't actually all that well aware of him i you know found him very quickly in the reading obviously but yeah uh, if someone had come to me several weeks ago and said hey have you heard of this guy i probably wouldn't have been able to say yeah that's the guy that sacked constantinople yeah i think at one point a couple of years ago i had looked up the wikipedia page and that may have been where that sure. name came from but but yeah actually that was probably when i was doing uh assassin's creed 2 <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's possible i could see that everyone kind of assumed that Mehmed would be kind of a terrible leader yeah partially because of his youth uh partially because of his personality Mehmed was determined to prove everyone wrong okay and that's kind of something that you see in history every once in a while. Especially when people expect leaders to be bad, they often fight against that really hard. Yeah. Sometimes almost overcompensate against yeah. it. I mean, at some point in history, Mehmed II is going to be known as Mehmed the Conqueror. So that's just to give you a little picture into <laughs> his into his future as to how he compensated against that. <laughs> the Ottomans actually held territory on both sides of the Bosphorus. Okay. They held a lot in Asia Minor, and they held quite a bit on the west of Constantinople. So Constantinople sort was... sort of Romania area? Exactly. Okay. Romania, Bulgaria, some, some of that stuff. So really, Constantinople was already surrounded by the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. It wasn't looking great for Constantinople <laughs> at this point in time. He decided that the best way to prove everyone wrong was to destroy the Byzantine Empire, which at this point is an empire that has stood for over 1,500 years. He looked around the schoolyard, found the biggest bully. <laughs> Decided to punch him in the nose and show everybody what he's made of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And the thing was, it seemed pretty ripe for the taking. I mean, Constantinople was not the city that it had once been. Mm -hmm. He figured he had a pretty good shot. So the first thing he did when he took power in 1451 was build, build a fortress on the west side of the Bosphorus, north of Constantinople. He already had a fortress that had been there on the east side of the Bosphorus. Okay. The idea being that all of those allies on the Black Sea that we just talked about, yeah. 
he wanted to be able to cut their access, uh, cut off access to Constantinople okay. from those yeah. allies. This had the dual effect of crippling them militarily because they had no chance of getting allies from north, and economically because they could control trade that was coming down through the Black Sea. Yeah. Now, in an earlier episode when I talked about the formation of Russia, yeah, one of the biggest trading partners with Constantinople, especially at this point in time, was from uh, Kievan Rus, which is sort of this proto-Russian state yeah. that extended all the way up to Scandinavia. So there was a trade route that basically went all the way down the uh, from Scandinavia down the Dnieper River to the Black Sea, across the Black Sea into Constantinople. Yeah, pretty major. And he just cut it off with a, a fortress that it had a name that in Turkish has a dual meaning, which uh, one of which is straight blocker, okay, and the other being throat cutter. Oh, okay. <laughs> The guy had a chip on his shoulder, okay? <laughs> but it was a very effective move. And as soon as that happened, even though he was being real, like in, in diplomatic relations, he was being yeah. very buddy-buddy with the, the emperor of Constantinople. That was kind of the moment when everyone knew. I'm putting this fortress here to show you how close we are. <laughs> <laughs> that was the moment when everyone knew that there were problems. Yeah. So this is when all the preparations start. The first thing... Oh, by, by the way, the leader of Constantinople at this point, the leader of the Byzantine Empire, is Constantine the Eleventh. Okay. Of the uh, Paleologus family, which is a great name. Okay. I really like it. <laughs> it means old knowledge. Ah. Oh, that makes... Yeah. Yep. There it is. Greek. And the Paleologus family had been in power since before the first conquest of constantinople yeah so this was the family who had grown the power of constantinople who had lost the city and then managed to take it back yeah so very i mean they're 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 an old ruling family but the story of that dynasty is very much a story of decline so it's kind of a sad okay story there yeah i, I mean as much as you can attribute something like that to historical events, I, I, I feel bad for that dynasty yeah. in general <laughs> and its 500-year history. They tried real hard. They tried oh so hard. No, 400-year history, I suppose. Constantine the Eleventh immediately started looking for help. Okay. Which is probably a good call. <laughs> because in 1452, not that long after this uh, this fortress was completed... Mehmed II sent troops to the Peloponnese, which, is, as we noted, was one of the few Byzantine places left. Yeah. And basically, the, the Peloponnese were being ruled by two of Constantine's brothers. Okay. Basically pinned down the Peloponnese so there was no way to get any troops from Peloponnese to Constantinople. Okay. Basically, at this point, Constantine is doing everything he can to get some help, and he writes the Pope. Okay. Now, remember, we've got several hundred years of bad blood between the Pope and yeah. anyone to do with Eastern Orthodoxy. There had been some some steps between the Byzantine Empire and the Catholic Church yeah. to sort of mend some fences. But it was mostly by the rulers and not by the actual religious elite. Okay. So... You've got this situation where the rulers are, the, the rulers are trying to make nice with the rest of Europe because they need the help. They need to the, the pressure has to come off somehow. Yeah. But the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church is firm set in his beliefs, so there's not really going to be major systemic change there, right? Yeah. Still 
Constantine had a good relationship with the Pope at this point, uh, Nicholas V. And recently, Nicholas V had proposed a papal bull called the Bull of Union, which was basically like, hey, we should get, we should figure this thing out. We should sit down and once and for all, like have a a real conference about how to reunite the church because we're all Christian. We should figure this out. Okay. This bull had been, or approval of this bull, I should say, had been delayed for several years. Yeah. Constantine said, hey, let's do that union thing we talked about. (laughs) And the Pope said, great, cool. And they all signed it. But at this point... It was really, really, like, it was way too late. Yeah. And as much as Nicholas V wanted to send help, well, let's let's talk about the rest of Europe at this point in time. Let's talk about what else is going on. Okay. In 1444, both Hungary and Poland had been terribly defeated by the Ottomans. Okay. So this is nine years before. Yeah. They're still reeling. Uh, were they both, both part of the Austro-Hungarian? Yeah, well, I guess Hungary was. But they were there was no union with Austria at this point. Okay. Hungary was its own country. Poland was its own country. Okay. They they were they were flying solo at this point. In the fifteenth century, Poland was actually a fairly strong power, as was Hungary, of like on on their own. Okay. But the Ottomans crushed them. <laughs> Is it because of that crush that the Austro-Hungarian Empire formed? No, that happened much much later. Much later. Okay. Much much later. Yeah, Hungary was its own thing for a very long time. Okay. No, that happened, we're talking, like, 19th century. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because the the Austrian Empire was its own thing, separately from the Hungarian Empire. It was, they, they were, it was made into the Austro-Hungarian Empire through a political marriage, basically. Okay. So, so, Hungary and Poland, they've got no help to send. Yeah. Spain was in the middle of something called the Reconquista, which was essentially that for several hundred years... Islamic Moors had been pushing into Spain from North Africa. Yep. And they were trying to push them back out. Yeah. They were trying to reclaim Spain. So they were they were on the defensive already. They had no one to send. Yeah. The Holy Roman Empire was completely embroiled in infighting. This is okay. a country that was made up of several hundred independent states. Germanic states. Yes. Yeah. And they were busy stabbing each other in the back and had no, no help to send. Yeah. When you're asking about... When, when you're talking about Germany at this point in time, asking for help means asking a couple hundred people to send really, really tiny numbers of troops. Yeah. It's not the same as asking France for help where it's one state and it's they one, can yeah. send one army. Speaking of France and England, they had just They're finished fighting. up. Well, they had just finished up the Hundred Years War and were completely okay. exhausted by it. Yeah. Who's left? Pretty much no one. Italy is made up of a few different small kingdoms. Little kingdoms, yeah. And the Papal States really don't have much to send at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Venice sends a little bit of help in the form of some some naval support, but like a dozen boats. <laughs> like, there, there's a little bit of help that way. There are some independent people who offer their help. For example, there was a man named uh, Giovanni uh, Giustinini, uh, an Italian man <laughs> who brought 700 of his own men with him to help defend Constantinople. Okay. He was actually an expert in defending walled cities and they immediately gave him command of the entire land wall of Constantinople. Okay. He was very good. He had a very good reputation and they figured with him on their side, they might have a shot at this. Yeah. So everyone kind of finishes up their preparations. Everyone knows what's going on. It's there's, there's no surprise attack here. 
he, yeah. like Mehmed the second might as well just have said, I'm coming at you. <laughs> I'm going to make my preparations and then I'm coming for you. And Constantine said, all right, well, we'll get ready. Yeah. It was, it was very above board. Yeah. So Justinini hired to defend the walls. The Byzantines stretched a defensive chain across the entrance to the Bosphorus. Okay. They did this because in the 13th century, when the Crusaders took the city, they actually took it across from from across the Bosphorus using uh, small boats and attacked the sea walls, which aren't nearly as strong as the land walls. Okay. So they were worried about attack from sea, yeah. naturally. So they took this giant chain. I was I was about to ask a literal chain. A literal chain floated on like logs and barrels, okay. like every once in a while, and floated it across the entire Bosphorus at okay. its entrance. Because boats can't just sail through chain. Yeah. It seems like a really crude answer, but it was very effective. But it works, yeah. It was very effective. To give you an idea of what we're talking about in terms of of the the upcoming battle, the entire population of Constantinople at this point in time is about 50,000 people. Yeah. They have about 7,000 men defending the walls, and about 2,000 of those are foreign mercenaries. That's not a lot of people. Yeah. The numbers for the Ottomans are a little bit trickier because here's what happens in history. The people who lose want to play up the numbers as much as possible to make it seem like, well, we did everything we could, but look how many of them there were. Yeah, look at the crushing odds. And the victors play down their numbers because they want to be like, yeah, we took it with only these many people. Yeah. So there were between 50,000 and 80,000 attackers. But no matter how many we're talking, even at the outside range, even if it was as small as we could possibly get, it's the same it's as... It's almost if... ten times as much. No, no, no. It's, it's, well, yeah, as, as the fighting men. But I was going to say it's, it's exactly the same as the population of the entire city if you include every single person, including yeah. the babies and including the, yeah. like everybody. Yeah. Everybody. So, overwhelming odds. Yeah. That being said, it was the best wall in all of Europe, easily. Yeah. There were these walls called the Theodosian Walls that had been put up by Theodosius, Emperor Theodosius. It was a series of two walls. So what they did was there was a ditch, and then a really tall wall, and then on the other side of that wall, another ditch, and then a second wall even higher up. Okay. It was really daunting. Yeah. Even if you managed to get over the first wall, which is almost impossible. Yeah. You have to go down into this big pit full of spikes that people can drop things on you from. Yeah. It's 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 nearly impossible to take the city using conventional means. Yeah. And in fact, nobody really had taken the city using conventional means for over a thousand years. Yeah. How did the crusaders do it? They came across the sea. Oh, right, you yeah. said. Yeah. Uh, and up the seawall. Yeah. Which was much less well it, it, it was it, it was much more poorly defended yeah and much lower and there was only the one wall and the byzantines or sorry the uh the ottomans had those positions already yes but the opposite side of the bosphorus was theirs but they didn't mass their troops there they massed their troops on the european side of the bosphorus and there was the the chain preventing them from bringing troops in to the Bosphorus to attack those sea walls. Okay. So so they didn't have the small boats necessary to cross the Bosphorus and attack that same seawall. 
the Bosphorus is fairly treacherous. It's it's not, I shouldn't say that. It's fairly treacherous if you're trying to, like, row across in a boat. Yeah. What you really want is to be able to bring some transport ships into the Bosphorus to carry people across. <clears throat> okay. That's really the only way to do it, especially with the kind of boats that you're working with at that point in time. Okay. So the Crusaders hadn't, like, you know, rowed themselves across in, like, groups of six. Yeah. They had brought like real boats into the Bosphorus to transport people across to the seawalls. And was it the uh, Byzantines or the Ottomans that stretched the chain across? The Byzantines, because they wanted to prevent the Ottomans from okay. bringing the boats up into the Bosphorus. Okay, that's that's where I got confused. I thought the Ottomans had. Okay, yep. No, I know a lot of this stuff is a little bit tricky in like audio formats, so please, any, anytime you need co- no, clarifications, yep. please let me know. That's fine. So like I, I was trying to get at, it sounds like... They're never going to win this battle because the walls are so strong, because they have people that are there that are experts at defending walls. Yeah. Because they have, you know, because of the quality of the walls themselves and because of the history of people trying to take the walls and the the knowledge that comes with that. Like every time you manage to repel attackers from the walls, you look at your battle and you go, where were they closest at succeeding? That's what we're going to make sure to work on next time. Okay. So there's this historical knowledge of defending these specific walls. Yeah. You know, the Ottomans are actually in okay shape. So I don't want to give the impression that this was a foregone conclusion long before the battle even started, even yeah. with those numbers. Yeah. It's look, they're, they're, they're looking all right. Now, the one thing I really want to avoid when we're talking about this is that it's often portrayed as a very, like a, a, a war of civilizations, right? This is a very, like islam versus christianity kind of event yeah and to some extent it was but it's not quite that black and white yeah there were turks that were helping to defend the walls of constantinople they had been hired they did their job they never you know turned and supported the ottomans when it all went wrong yeah that that happened similarly there were christians fighting for the ottoman empire it's not it's not this like nice, clean, neat thing that happened. Yeah. And it's really important to remember that because sometimes things happen in history that are very close to being nice and clean and neat. Yeah. And people are willing to sort of overlook certain details in order to make them fit a narrative more closely. Yeah. Another thing that would really nicely have fit this, this narrative in, 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 if it had turned out slightly differently was this one man. His name was Orban. Possibly urban, we're not sure. Uh, Orban was the the, the way the uh, the Turks referred to him. We're not sure if he was German, if he was possibly from uh, Bulgaria. It's it's not super clear in the records. He's kind of a mysterious dude. Okay. He showed up at the gates of Constantinople and said, "I am the best gunmaker there is, and I will build you, I will build you cannons for your walls to help defend against the coming battles." Yeah. Constantine looked to raise the funds to pay Orban to help him defend the, the city. They were unable to pay him. Okay. So Orban went to Mehmed II and said, I will build you the best gun you have ever seen to break down those walls. <laughs> he said to him, I will build a gun so powerful that the gates of Babylon themselves would not be able to stand against them. That's a good quote. <laughs> and... Mehmed II said, sure. Do it up. That sounds great. And he went to work on this gun that he called the Basilica. Ooh. 
now guns at this point in time are what what we call now uh, bombards. It's a straight bore cannon, so there's no rifling to keep them accurate. Yep. They used stone balls because it was cheaper to chisel and then lave a ball into a mostly round shape and then kind of pack the rest with a leather wad. Oh, okay. Well, keep in mind that like making iron and, and molding and casting iron is, yeah. is expensive at this point in time. Yeah. So iron balls don't make sense for them to fire at walls. Yeah. They're just losing iron and giving it to the enemies. Yeah. So they're thinking like stone balls, way to go. The thing about stone balls, it's much lighter than an iron ball. So you need bigger ones to be more effective. And you need faster moving ones because if you have a slow moving, smaller stone ball, they're just going to shatter against a wall. Yeah. So you need them as big as possible and as fast as possible. <laughs> oh, good. To do damage. The Basilica was 27 feet long, and it fired 600-pound balls. Holy... And it could fire it 1.6 kilometers, so over a mile. It took 60 oxen to move it around, and it took a team of 400 men to run it. This doesn't sound real. Like, I know it is, but... I know. That's incredible. And this is what I'm talking about where it sounds like something from a movie, right? Yeah. You can see this guy in the movie. It works. Yeah. He's there. We'll come back to Orban in a little bit. We'll talk about him a little bit later. The setup for the, the Turks was basically he got two armies encamped outside the Theodosian walls, ready to go. The Byzantines saw this. They got as many people on the land walls as they could had a token force on the seawalls just in case, but yeah. were pretty confident in their chain and had some defensive cannons on the walls, but nothing that spectacular, really. Yeah. Walls don't take a lot to defend against. No. Or to, 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 it doesn't take a lot to defend a, a wall with. Yeah, especially when it's on a hill like that. Yeah, it's it's perfectly set up. This this wall is the classic wall. This is the wall that, <clears throat> this is the wall that people look at as sort of the, the, the prototypical walled defense yeah it's perfect for defending a wall so they were pretty much good to go on april 2nd 1453 the monday after easter mehmed the second began his attack so we'll take a quick break and after the break we'll talk about uh, how that siege went for everybody <laughs> Hey guys, normally I do an announcement at this point in the show, but uh, this time I just really wanted to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show over the past six months. I've always wanted to do something with history in a way that's more interesting and accessible than what you might have found in your high school classes, and I'm just indescribably happy that the format I decided to try out has resonated with as many people as it has. I feel like everyone likes history, or at least some part of it, even if they claim otherwise, which is pretty common. And I'd really like to tap into those people who are a bit stubborn about their preferences on a subject that literally encompasses the entire human experience. So thank you for everyone who has told me how much they like the show. Thank you to anyone who has told me what they don't like and what they'd like to see changed, because it's incredibly helpful for me. To those of you who have been guests on the show, thank you so much. And especially to anyone who has told others about the show. It's really touching to see the numbers go up week by week and know that it's through word of mouth. That's the only way I get new listeners. So if you know anyone at all that might like HI101, please let them know that it's out there. 
And again, just to everyone that listens, sincerely, thank you so much for your support. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Ethan. Hey. And we were talking about all the preparations, the uh, the prelude, if you will, to the siege. <laughs> Good callback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It was looking not terrible for the Byzantines at this point. Yeah. I, if you count up the number of people, maybe it sounds a little bit daunting, but... But they also had one of the most historically defensible positions. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were they worried? Absolutely. Were they taking this seriously? Yes. Did they expect this to be the end of the Byzantine Empire? No. Yeah. No. They thought they had a good chance. Mm -hmm. The siege began, as I said, the uh, the Monday after Easter, fourteen fifty three, and the first thing that happened was that Ottoman troops immediately cleaned up any Byzantine holdings outside the walls. So any small fortresses or garrisons, anything that wasn't protected behind the Theodosian walls. Yeah. Gone like that. Yeah. Which just makes sense. You don't want anyone attacking your rear during a siege. And did the Byzantines only have like a token force in those fortresses? Absolutely. They had withdrawn everyone that they could back into the city. So To leave like two guards at every... Well, it wasn't that bad, but it, it, it was some pretty small forces. Yeah. The thing about sieges specifically is that when you when you meet for battle on the field, it's usually, you know, barring things like the, the landscape helping you out in some way yeah. or some sort of tactical advantage, like surprise. Yeah. Generally, uh, if, if it's an even number of forces, you've got an even chance of winning. Yeah. To guarantee victory, you want about three times as many people. If you don't have three times as many people or more, there's no guarantees. Yeah. That's kind of a rule of thumb. It doesn't always go that way, but that, that's that's it's generally how it works Statistics. Out. Yeah. So if it was out on the open field, 50,000 people versus 7,000 people, it's pretty clear what would happen. Yeah. Throw a wall into that equation and all bets are off. Yeah. Walls walls work really well. They work really, really well, and they have for up until the last 400 years or so. Yeah. Once they cleaned up all of these outside garrisons, just to make sure that, that their flanks are secure, and remember, they've already taken care of troops in the Peloponnese coming to reinforce. They're not worried there. Europe is basically crippled, so they're not worried about any more reinforcements from Europe other than what's kind of already trickled into the city. Yeah. And was a nominal number of people, so... They didn't really mind that much. Yeah. And all of their holdings up in the Black Sea or all their allies up in the Black Sea cut off by their two fortresses. Yeah. Basically, all that's left is just Constantinople. It's on its own. Yeah. Now, Constantinople did have good food stores, which is important in a siege. Yeah. And there was a natural system of water underneath the city. Also important in the siege. Yeah. Yeah. So it's well positioned for a siege. I mean, Constantinople has been under siege countless times across history. It's just that they're never successful yeah so usually what happens in a siege is that you just starve them out yeah it's very rare that a siege ends with an actual attack yeah in history usually it's a matter of somebody opening the gates and saying we can't take this anymore yeah which is why sieges often last months and months that's kind of what the ottomans were hoping for but Mehmed was trying to prove himself and so you can't just a little glory too you know yeah, absolutely. He absolutely wanted some glory. So for the sake of just personal honor, he couldn't just roll up and then camp out and be like, what? 
<laughs> what are you guys going to do? The first thing he did after taking all of those reinforcements is attack the wall. Just straight up attack it, throw up some ladders, try and, get, try and get up there. Went super bad for the Ottomans, <laughs> as you can probably imagine. <laughs> I mean, it had a very deep moat. It had a very tall wall. There were guys on top of it shooting down at them. Yeah. In general, when we're talking about weapons here, most of these guys are still using very like medieval weapons. So there's a lot of spears and halberds, yeah. uh, a lot of crossbows, yep. things like that. So okay. we're not really at a point where everyone's carrying muskets or anything like that. Yeah. You're not seeing that for another 200 years or so that they're okay. actually outfitting people with stuff like that. Okay. And well, actually probably more like 300 years is more reasonable, to be honest with you. Gunpowder is a funny thing. It's it's really, really tricky to use. Yeah. It feels like as soon as gunpowder is invented, things like Everything swords changes, and it... spears should be just like out of the picture completely. No, it takes hundreds of years to get gunpowder to a point where it's actually that reliable. Yeah. So there are also people with bombards, so like tiny cannons that they carry around with them. Okay. You don't want to be the bombard guy. Because the metal that they're using to cast these things, it's not even as though they're pouring them into a mold and it's nice and strong. They're forging them. They're hand forging them. Oh. So they had a they had a tendency to kind of just explode. Blow up. Yeah. The other thing that they hadn't quite figured out was recoil. So when you see cannons at a, an historical fort today, or say in a pirate movie or something like that, they're yeah. always on wheels, right? Yeah. And tied to a rope. And when you fire them, they they roll back. Yeah. Really quickly. And that's recoil. It's it's Newtonian physics. Yeah. Equal and opposite reaction, all of that stuff, right? Yeah. You want to fling something really fast and really hard that way. It'll probably the, move back this way. Yeah, the cannon's going to move back this way. They just kind of like buried them in it, like in one spot, like tried to brace them as much as possible. Okay. And so the recoil would actually damage whatever was behind the cannons. So the Byzantines, by using cannons on their walls and trying like to, to strap them in place, were actually doing damage to their own walls oh. from the recoil of the cannons. Okay. They just hadn't gotten that 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 concept quite yet. Yeah. And it's one of those it's one of those things where you look back and you kind of go like, what were they thinking? How could they miss this super obvious thing? It's not It's not obvious. This is a very new thing for them. It's a very yeah. new technology. They just hadn't figured out how to deal with it. Yeah. Likewise, the massive bombards that the Ottomans were using to attack the walls, because, I mean, there wasn't just Basilica. Orvan had made a number of other fairly large guns. They're, they're often classified as super guns, which, which <laughs> sounds made up. <laughs> kind of like the size of Basilica, but these are yeah. large guns that they're trying to hit the walls with. Yeah. Those had a tendency to blow up every once in a while. Those and and it wasn't just because of the forging process, but also because it was absorbing its own recoil. Okay. Yeah. Right? So it's 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 shuttering the the gun itself when it goes off. And I'm assuming that they don't they aren't using like steel that has a bit less brittleness than straight iron. As far as I know, at this point, they're all made from iron. Yeah, which is a little bit more brittle. Yes. So they're not good quality guns. Yeah. Basilica that we were talking about beforehand, was they, they were firing it yeah. uh, at the walls. Basilica, along with the other guns, not that accurate. It was really bad at actually hitting the walls. Yeah. Basilica itself took three hours to reload properly. 
they were firing once every three hours and super inaccurate so they couldn't actually concentrate fire on one place yeah because the way that you want to break through a wall at this point in time is concentrate your fire at one spot and just try to brute force your way through yeah yeah good luck hitting the same spot twice in a row because there's a smooth bore which means that the ball doesn't spin when it comes out yeah spinning balls are more accurate yeah the gunpowder that they're using is poor quality yeah so you're not getting a consistent amount of force yep out of it which is also dangerous for the gun which which is another thing absolutely and the measurement of gunpowder that they're putting in this is speculation this is speculation on my part but i doubt that it was all that accurate yeah and even the smallest change in amount of explosive is going to greatly change the accuracy of your gun yeah besides it's shuttering itself apart from recoil which is probably changing the just the physical characteristics of the gun yeah and i bet every time that thing goes off it moves where it's pointing a little bit yeah so as crazy cool as basilica sounds they weren't that worried about it because (laughs) when it did hit the wall they knew that they had three hours before it was going to go off again and they had masons on hand that would go down repair the damage and come back up before the gun could go off a second time. <laughs> I mean, why not? Yep. You know? So, the guns were terrifying. Yeah. Because, my goodness, can you imagine? <laughs> a 300-pound ball of Six, stone? 600. 600, sorry. Pound ball of stone flying at you. Yep. It's gonna it's gonna scare you no matter what. And seeing just the, the sheer destructive damage that it's doing to the... Yeah. The walls, the, the the power of that thing is just yeah immense. So psychologically, oh my goodness. Practically, not not really that helpful. Yeah. Cool, absolutely. One hundred percent. So beginning of the siege is going pretty well. Yeah. The defensive chain held the Ottoman Navy out of the Golden Horn really effectively. They didn't manage to get any boats through. Yeah. In fact, four Venetian boats managed to slip by the Ottoman lines and across the chain to bring almost no reinforcements to Constantinople. <laughs> but in terms of morale, it was really, really good for the Byzantines. Yeah. So basically they're looking at this going, oh my goodness, like everything is going so incredibly well right now. As the Ottomans used more and more smaller bombards to actually concentrate the fire, the walls were getting pretty raggedy. Yeah. Like, they they weren't doing that great. But in general, siege is going pretty good. Everybody's Mm -hmm. got some food. Everybody's got clean water. Yeah. You know, you maybe don't want to be standing front and center on the wall. But even (laughs) then, the chances of you actually getting hit are are relatively slim. Yeah. You're probably more in danger from a crossbowman running up and taking a shot at you than you are from any of the bombards yeah at the same time starting in mid-may so like a little bit more than a month after the siege had started yeah the ottomans started building uh, mines a common tactic with attacking walled cities was to dig mines dig under dig under so well i mean undermining comes from okay yeah. doing this like literally you're little literally mining under the the walls yeah which compromises their integrity okay so this is this is twofold it depends on how well the digging goes but either you can compromise the walls or 
if you're really good you can dig up and under the walls now that's it's not really that effective other than psychologically yeah because it's a pretty small hole you can only get people out of there so fast turns into into a game of whack-a-mole i was gonna say it's like it's like (laughs) whack-a-mole But but really what they're going for is, is compromising the walls, because yeah. if you don't have a solid foundation on the walls and it gets hit by Basilica, it's going to do a lot more damage. Yeah. It has the potential to do more damage. Yeah. Now, the Byzantines had hired a guy named uh, Johannes Grant. Okay. Uh, he was listed as a German. Some people think he might have been Scottish, like John Grant. I don't know why no one can keep nationalities straight in this story, <laughs> but I keep finding so many contradictions on where people came from. Huh. But I think really what this shows is that Constantinople was so central and so metropolitan that the idea of people coming from all over the world for one reason or another is completely plausible in this situation. Yeah. There, there's a lot of reasons that people don't want Constantinople to fall, right? I mean, if you're looking at it from a, a cultural, religious, civilization standpoint, people are going, well, no, I'm not down with the Orthodoxy, but I'd rather have Orthodox Christians there than than muslims yeah and 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 that's the way say the pope who's offering to help is is looking at the situation right? they already saw what was going on in spain exactly uh you also have merchants across europe who are going no there's a lot of trade coming through there and i don't want to change any of yeah. that right now everything's going well with trade yeah let's please leave it that way yeah so there are a lot of there are a lot of reasons that people want constantinople to survive yeah it's just that it's not as though it was abandoned by the rest of Europe. It's just that they could only help so much based on all of these other things that were going on. Right? Yeah. So the idea of a Scotsman showing up and being like, yo, I know countermines. I know how to mine city walls and I know what to do to stop it. The idea of that guy showing up and being like, let me help. It's, it's completely plausible. Yeah. There's, there's no reason to think that that would be outrageous in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And, there, and the interesting part of that is that the Byzantine military would look at that guy and be like, okay, sure, sounds good, and have almost no questions about it. Yeah. So Johannes Grant started building countermines, like, immediately. And what they would do is just, like, build out, build, build mine shafts out at about the depth that they figure it would probably be, and do exploratory digging to try and find the mines that are coming to undermine the the walls. Whoa. <laughs> They're just the Byzantines are just looking for mines that are coming for their walls. Yes. Whereas the Ottoman mines that are coming need to be wide enough to support both workers and soldiers to defend those workers. Yes. So they're much slower, and they also have to be a lot more deliberate because they need to figure out where exactly they are in relation to the mines. Yeah. It's a tricky thing to do, building mines like that. Yeah. They found several mines they would just straight up slaughter the workers that they found in there occasionally they would use greek fire to clear out the mine as quickly as possible on the 21st of may mehmed ii offered terms to constantine oh okay he said you know what you're not going to survive this one in my opinion this was a little bit arrogant because things are going really well for the Byzantines at this point in time. Yeah. You guys aren't going to survive this one. I'm going to let you, Constantine, leave, and you can have Peloponnese. You can be emperor of the Peloponnese. Anyone who wants to leave the city may leave unmolested along with any possessions that they want to bring along with them. 
and anyone who wants to stay in Constantinople will be allowed to stay unmolested. I want the city. Hmm. Constantine said no. And what he told Mehmed's, well, indirectly through messengers, was, this isn't really my choice. I am emperor of Constantinople. I am Constantinople. Okay. I can't walk away from this, and my citizens can't walk away from this any more than the city itself can get up and walk away. Okay. Looking back on it now and knowing that he's going to lose, (laughs) that seems like a dumb thing to say. But at the time, I mean, that's what rulers do. I mean, they, they, they don't just get up and abandon their cities. They're, they're empires in this case. Yeah. That's not how you roll. So he turned down the, the, the terms. A couple of days later, on, on May 25th, or sorry, May, May 23rd, uh, so two days later, one of the countermines that Grant was working on managed to capture an Ottoman officer who they tortured mercilessly yeah. and got the locations of all the other tunnels that were coming in from. Whoa. Awesome. So May 23rd, we're looking like everything should be fine. Yeah. And then everything goes sideways. On the 25th, after, you know, a couple of days after Constantine refused his terms, Mehmed decided, this is taking too long. I'm going to make a push. Okay. They up the firing rate on the walls. Yeah. Because, I mean, during a siege, you fire cannons every once in a while. It's kind of lazy. Yeah. They they really increase the rate of fire. They really try to concentrate it as much as they possibly can. Yeah. On the 22nd, so a couple of days before they, they really start this push, on the 22nd of May, there was a lunar eclipse. Okay. And then fog rolled into Constantinople, which was really, really weird for May. Yeah. And then during this, like just after this lunar eclipse, during this fog, St. Elmo's fire was seen on the top of the Hagia Sophia. Okay. A rumor started going around that it was the Holy Spirit leaving the city. Oh. That's that's bad for Constantinople. Constantinople is... I, I mean, it's an incredibly devout city. It's an incredibly religious city. St. Elmo's Fire is just a phenomenon that happens during yeah. storms. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just charged plasmic... Uh, gases that yeah. kind of glow they yeah. tend to glow at, at you know where there are points there's a, this big dome on Hagia Sophia that's got a, a point on the top okay so there was this plume of St. Elmo's, St. Elmo's fire on the top of Hagia Sophia yeah which kept getting obscured by this fog that was rolling through and this rumor starts which is like the worst thing for morale yeah you don't want a rumor going around that the that the Holy Spirit just abandoned your city yeah to the you know, in, in their opinion, the heathens that are coming to take it from yeah. you. Just out of curiosity, you said that one of the sticking points between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church was the difference of the Holy Spirit? Yes. What did the Orthodox Church think about the Holy Spirit? Oh, you know, this is the second time I've gotten into this on one of my podcasts, which is kind of weird, but I, I find it so interesting just because it's such a subtle thing. Yeah. There is an idea called um consubstantiality yeah which is that god the father like both both churches believe that god the father is 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 at the top yeah in the 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 western church in the roman catholic church there's this belief that jesus and the holy spirit are both like the same level as as each other okay so so they were created at the same time yeah which they weren't really they've always 
they're eternal. But anyways, we're we're getting into weird theological stuff. Yeah, they're they're equal. Yeah. Okay, and in in hierarchy and in timing, they happen at the same time. So it's like a triangle. There's God at the top, and then there's the other two second yeah. tier. Yeah, in the Eastern Church, the idea is that there was God the Father, then Jesus. And then the third tier is the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can only exist because of Jesus' death. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Now, for both churches, there's still the idea of the Trinity. Yeah. And uh, in both churches, all three are equally holy and and are are aspects of God. Yeah. But there's this 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 argument of of how. Anyways, it's it's. It's it's fascinating in how pedantic and how very very um, specific it is. Yeah, and the idea that people would excommunicate each other over it, I, I find it interesting. I understand that most people would not. <laughs> I, yeah. I get that. No, I get that. I find it very interesting as well. So, anyways, it's not as though. I, I mean, I mean, the people still very much believed in the Holy Spirit and yeah. believed that its protection was essential to the survival of the, yeah. the city. That had very little to do with the the disagreement between the two churches. Anyways, there's this complete drop in morale thanks to some very poorly timed St. Elmo's fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, things like this come up all the time in history, this weird sort of quirks in, in, in timing these coincidences. Yeah. Think the, uh, the, the storm that swept away the Spanish Armada yeah. attacking the, uh, the English fleet often referred to as uh, a protestant wind <laughs> which is which is really funny <laughs> but you know every once in a while these things happen but just because they're coincidences doesn't mean that we can discount the fact that they have a very real effect on the people that yeah. are involved in the in, in these events so we have a massive drop in morale on the 28th of May, so a few days later, there's the final day of preparation by Ottomans. They give them the... They, they've been really drilling the troops, getting them ready for an attack. On the 28th, they give them the day off for rest, for prayer, for final preparations. Get your gear in order. Yeah. Make sure everything is sharp and ready to go. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, inside the city, there's a religious ceremony involving the emperor and officials from both the Western and Eastern churches within the Hagia Sophia. So that gives you an idea of how desperate things have gotten. Yeah. Come back. Well, I mean, I, I'm not entirely certain that the, you know, the patriarch of the the, the Greek Orthodox Church believed that the, the Holy Spirit had left, but... A little extra prayer never hurt. It never hurt anybody. When the attack began, Giovanni Giustinini, the guy that was put in, in charge of the yeah. walls, was terribly wounded by a crossbow bolt. Okay. And taken away from the walls. Again, really bad for bad morale. Timing. It was the worst for morale. There were thousands of Ottomans swarming the walls on ladders at the most broken down point that they could find. Mm-hmm. Justinini is pulled away from the walls. The The number of soldiers that are still left on the walls is very low at this point. And once their commander is gone, there's a number of people who decide, I need to go home and make sure my family is okay. And they leave their posts to go home and protect their families, which makes it easier for the Ottomans to get over. Yeah. Gates are opened from the inside. They get across the walls, they open gates, and it's essentially over at that point. Yeah. There's one final push. Horrible casualties on the Ottoman side. They take so many casualties. Yeah. But they have so many more men that they can just keep throwing at it that they manage to get through. 
when Constantine found out, he said something along the lines, I'll have to add this to the notes, but he said something along the lines of the city is taken and I'm still alive, which is his way of saying this shouldn't have happened. I'm the emperor. I should have stopped this somehow. Yeah. And he removed every symbol of office that he was wearing. Okay. Jumped on a horse and led a final charge into the Ottomans. Now, the Ottomans, the, the way they did this was they took all of their... And this this makes them sound terrible, but anyways. They, they took all of their Christian soldiers and they were the ones that went up the ladders. They sent them to be just the the fodder okay and once they opened the gates then their janissaries their their elite yep. cavalry units were the ones that rode into the city to yeah take care of business so constantine led this final charge against the janissaries to do what he could but knowing that there was nothing he could do it's more a symbolic gesture absolutely and an honorable one too yes. in his eyes in, in his in his eyes absolutely now this is a little bit of a problematic thing because there is one account that says that as soon as the first, first gate was breached, he hung himself. Hmm. I think this is one of those cases that we're never going to know the true story. And it's almost easier just to let the guy have the, <laughs> the better ending. Yeah. Again, this is where we're talking about making stories nice and neat. Yeah. Orban, who we had been talking about, speaking of nice and neat stories, he died when one of his... When one of his cannons exploded. <laughs> Which, again, is not that nice and neat. There, there's a few things where it's kind of like, if we were making this movie, Orban <laughs> wouldn't have died. No. It's possible that Giustinini, instead of taking a crossbow bolt, either to his arm or leg, we're not really sure, and yeah. dying of his wounds like a week later in yeah. horrible agony, would probably have, you know, died outright just bit it it's possible that there would have been some sort of treachery involved in losing the walls rather yeah. than just an overwhelming force like this is how movies about historical events <laughs> end up being as bad as they are because you can look at this and go it's almost it's almost right yeah it's almost perfectly this nicely encapsulated little story yeah but that's not how reality works and that's kind of mm -hmm. something that we have to live with a little bit when we're looking at the actual reality of the situation yeah but, uh, yeah, Orban, man, just mysterious, Boom. mysterious mercenary gun maker makes the biggest gun ever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really cool story, <laughs> and I wish I knew more about him, and I never will. Yeah. And that's too bad. The first thing that the Janissaries did was go to the Church of the Holy Apostles and defend that. Okay. Mehmed had decided that he was going to take the, ha the Hagia Sophia and turn it into a mosque. Okay. Have you ever seen pictures of Hagia Sophia? I have. It is one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. Yeah. It's incredible. He decided that he was going to make the Church of the Holy Apostles, which is kind of like the second most important church in okay. Constantinople. He was going to make that the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church and basically keep the patriarch under his thumb. Okay. So that's why he had the troops go there and make sure it was going to be okay. Yeah. When cities are taken, they're plundered. This is just a thing that happens in history. It has always happened in history. And there is no difference from 5,000 years ago to uh, when Berlin was taken in at the end of World War II. There's yeah. always plunder. The taking of a city is a horrific thing. And that can't really be overstated. People yeah. are murdered. There is... They'll, they'll steal anything that they can get their hands on. Yeah. It, is, it is a nasty, nasty affair. 
at this time in history, it was customary to give your troops three days worth of plundering. And that's what Mehmed did. Okay. So they spent three days, well, I mean, raping and pillaging is a phrase for a reason. Yeah. Going through the city and taking everything that they could. A lot of people went into Hagia Sophia hoping for sanctuary. Yeah. It was the custom in Europe at this point in time that if you were that in if the you church, were in a church, they left you alone. Yeah. It was, and, and this was out of respect for the church more than it was for the people yeah. because it would be wrong to kill someone inside a church. Yeah. It's one of those distinctions that seems really hypocritical when you think about it a little bit too much, but that's just how it worked. Yeah. They did not honor sanctuary. Oh. They went into Hagia Sophia. They stole things from Hagia Sophia. They divided the people in Hagia Sophia up based on how much they thought they would be able to sell them into slavery for. Oh. The sack of Constantinople was a terrible thing. Yeah. One of the few... One of the few things that you can actually say about it is that they didn't destroy too much of major historical significance. And that is the the smallest of comforts, <laughs> given all the terrible, terrible things that happened. Yeah. But, you know, one of the most tragic things that happened during the sacking of Rome, you know, when, now that we're 1,500 years removed, yeah. is the amount of history that was dis- destroyed in yeah. the process. Fortunately, Constantinople avoided a lot of that. Yeah. But it was still a a terrible, terrible thing. And when Mehmed went into the city afterwards and saw what was happening, he was legitimately, truly disturbed by what had happened and ordered an immediate stop to everything. I mean, yeah, he had let it go on for three days before he went to inspect things. But uh, he he was, by all accounts, genuinely uh, upset by what his soldiers had done within the city. Again, that forgives nothing but yeah it says a little bit about Mehmed uh, at the very least but this is a guy who was 21 and leading an entire empire and I don't know it's always crazy to think about that yeah I couldn't have led an empire at 21 (laughs) (laughs) and it's amazing to think that there are people that have done that and and at much younger ages and have done it successfully well (laughs) yeah it's crazy yeah so Mehmed had the city it was it was very much his. It was very much in his control. Over the following years, Constantine's brothers, Thomas and Demetrius, who were in the Peloponnese, they fought back against the Ottomans, but were defeated by 1460. Yeah. Which was essentially the last outpost of the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. Constantine had no children. Um, okay. If he had died with no heirs, the children of his deceased older brother would have taken the throne. Yeah. Instead, they were adopted by Mehmed into his court. And became courtiers within the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And just by that, just by a six-week siege against Constantinople and a couple of cleanup campaigns afterwards, the Ottoman Empire ended a 1,500-year-old empire. Wow. It's really crazy to think about. Yeah. Now, we've talked for what will be an entire episode (laughs) about the fall of one city. Yeah. Cities have fallen so many times throughout history. So many times. There have been so many sacks. <laughs> there have been so much more tragic uh, battles for cities. There have yeah. been even more interesting battles for cities. Yeah. The ramifications of this conquest are so far-reaching that I thought it was really important to talk about this one specifically. The cultural significance, the effects on 
European politics, on European education and intellectualism, mm -hmm. on the exploration of the world, on religion. All of this stuff was very, very, very heavily impacted by the fall of Constantinople. And that's that's really why we've gone all over all of this stuff today. Yeah. But I think it's best that we leave sort of the discussion of the, the aftermath, because the aftermath is so big, we'll leave that for the next episode. Okay. So we'll leave it right there, and we'll be back next time. The actual siege of Constantinople itself was important in its own right, as its conquest meant a shift in local political power from one empire to another. But as a political, cultural, legal, and economic center, Constantinople had been propping up far more of Western society than just the one arcane empire. Next time, we'll talk about some of the far-reaching consequences of the end of the Byzantine Empire and how it changed all of Europe. That episode will be up on January 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.